Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I'm your host, Brandy Miller, and if you want to support the podcast, you already are by listening, but you can also subscribe, rate, review, follow, or join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash reclaimingmytheology. This week, y'all, I'm joined by my friend Patty Taylor to talk about rape culture. It felt important to talk about this because there are specific realities in Christian culture that create a ripe environment to maintain and actively perpetuate rape culture and its associated violences. I really want to have these conversations openly and continue to have a deeper understanding of what is often described in passing. This topic is heavy, but we worked really hard to hold the conversation with tenderness and clarity. There are a few times where we talk about specific assault situations, but remain relatively unexplicit. However, we do talk a little bit more specifically when we begin to talk about Ravi Zacharias around minute 55, and that lasts for about two minutes. I also want to repeat the invitation to hold yourself and others with compassion and tenderness as you listen to these episodes and conversations. Breathwork, work with art, and even just going on walks have been great tools for people who are experiencing triggers during this season already. So I offer that as we enter this conversation with Patty Taylor. Let's get it. By get it, I mean dive into some pretty (laughs) rough stuff today and maybe be unpacking years of maybe decades of trauma and pain from the church and from people around us. But I am grateful to have you on. Uh, When I was thinking of people I wanted to have this conversation with, you were top of mind. And I think especially as Black women who have been pushed to the outskirts of conversations in purity culture and specifically around rape culture, it felt important to me to talk to another Black woman about this. So Patty, thank you so much for being on and being willing to do this with me because I know there is a cost emotionally and functionally to this kind thank of work. Thank you. It was it was an easy yes for me. And again, not because the conversation is going to be easy by any means, but because it is that important and necessary. And I just love what you've already pointed out that so often we as Black women and people who are marginalized don't have a say-so within this conversation that impacts us all so greatly. So thank you for opening this up because it's a conversation that needs to be had. Yeah, and we'll talk about this more too because ultimately purity culture and ideology are all about Mm -hmm. power and how power plays out. And so part of my desire in this podcast in general, just for listeners, is to reclaim not just theology, but reclaim power for marginalized people to be able to own and shape conversations that have disproportionately impacted them. And so that's part of just the behind the curtain ideology of what we're doing. But with all of that, Patty, I do want people to get to know you a little bit as a person before we dig into this topic today. And so I would love for you describing, you know, this is coming. What does it mean to be you? (laughs) I know this is like the one question on the outline that I left blank. Oh, if you are familiar with me at all or follow me on social media, I go by Patricia A. Taylor, but I'm Patty. I'm Patty to people who know me. I'm a mom of three daughters. I've been married for over 12 years. Uh, our family just moved to from Georgia to Texas. I'm originally from California. So lots of big transitions happening in my life, like right now, currently. But mainly, I'm a 40-year-old woman who is finding myself and falling back mm-hmm. in love with myself, embracing who I am more and more every day. And it's, it's hard, and it's beautiful, and it's so worth it. And it's like, oh, why didn't I do this long ago? But there's lots of reasons for that, that we don't have to impact today. (laughs) Um, But really just, I've been on this journey of, of reclaiming myself, honestly, finding my voice and, Mm -hmm. and finding my place and, and being really firm in that. And, and I love that for me. I love that for (laughs) you too. Thank you. And again, it just feels like 
so many of us are doing that journey for the first time. And I think a lot of people feel shame that we're like finding ourselves right, later right. in life. But I think we're a product of our mm -hmm. environments. And this is like a normal part of what it means to become us, exactly. which I think is so beautiful that you're describing that. This so isn't clearly. Instagram. This is our this is our reality. You know, it's okay. We don't have it all figured yes. out by 25. And if you do, good for you. But that's not my life. <laughs> and it'll probably change by the time you're 30. Right. So. Right. <laughs> Well, Patty, tell me a little bit about the work that you do or even just the things that you spend your time doing. Absolutely. Well, outside of family and again, we are just smack dab in the middle of this major transition. My heartbeat is to have conversations around racial justice and I do anti-racism education. And so that's shown up in the form of uh, working with formal organizations, I'm seeking out um, the same here in Texas because we are brand new to the state. Uh, I don't have to tell anyone that there's a lot happening in Texas. <laughs> but one thing for me is that so often we hear this idea of, yeah, I mean, just that state, that state's trash and that state's going through this and they're doing this. And like, why don't people just leave? This is people live here who deserve to have mm -hmm. the equity and opportunity that everyone does in every other state. Mm -hmm. And n we are here now, too. And I want that for my family and for everyone who lives here. So I am actively seeking out ways to do that and to be involved locally, uh, especially with a big election coming up and yes. continuing the work that I'm doing in writing, um, anti-racism education on my various platforms and I'm actually making a little progress, Brandy, um, on my book proposal. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like, whew, this is like really scary. I think I think this is the first time I've said it out loud because it's been like over a year and it's been pretty stagnant. But I'm like, I'm going somewhere. I'm going somewhere. <laughs> I'm honored to hold that with you. <laughs> Thank you. That's such good and hard work. And it really does cross over a lot with some of the stuff that we're talking about today, especially even the political ideologies mm -hmm. currently playing out in places like Florida or Texas on the religious right. And so today, if people didn't read the title of this episode, we are talking about Christian rape culture um, as we talk about purity culture, because you cannot talk about one without talking about the other, although many, many people have tried. And so mm -hmm. it is our intention today to kind of unravel what Christian rape culture is in the ways that it gets theologically embedded and then to try to offer some kind of path forward. But as we get into that, Patty, I would love for you to describe just a little bit of your history with purity culture. Has it or how has it intersected with your life and work? Sure, absolutely. So for me, I did not grow up in the church, so I do not have a, a situation in which I just grew up with this purity culture theology. However, when I came to come to know Jesus and believe that, that this was real, that Jesus was, was real and, and have a relationship. I was in college and I was no longer a virgin. And that was like the number one thing that you always hear, you know, when you come to know the Lord, you got to make sure that you're pure. You have to make sure that you're this. And I was like, oh my gosh, how do I get right with the Lord? Like now, mm -hmm. like I'm in college, I'm still, you know, late teens, like 18, 19. But I'm like, okay, how, how can I make this right? How can I make sure that I'm honoring God, doing all the right things? Now that I found Jesus, I want to go about things in the right way. Like this whole, you'll hear this a lot, like, but this idea of being in the right standing and doing the right thing was super important to me. And mm -hmm. I really clung to a lot of books, a lot of teachings that were all about making yourself pure and 
Joshua Harris, good old, good old Joshua Harris is I kiss dating goodbye came out in 97 and I was in college. I started in 99. So mm-hmm. this like just a few years after this book came out, I'm, I was looking for something that would help me to feel like I could actually like be a good Christian, even though I had had sex. And the, the wild part is I, I just read that book and felt so much shame the entire time, but I thought that's what I was supposed to feel. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember anything about it except for the intro where he talks about basically like being at the altar, like this dream of him being at the altar with the person he's going to marry and like all the women that he's kissed or been with are like all lined up next to him. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, like I'm going to be at the altar. Like, you know, any, anyone that I've like winked at is going to be standing next to me and I'll never be pure and I'll never have love. And my, my partner is going to think I'm tarnished goods and I'm, you know, used up and thrown out and I've got to get my life right. And so like that for me was, was a really interesting and hard place because I, I was in college. I was away from home. I was exploring. I was, you know, just experiencing life in ways I never had mm-hmm. before and also trying to fit into what I thought was like the proper good girl Christian mold and you know and well how do I dress now or do I it's is it is it wrong everything is wrong like that's how I'm thinking everything I'm doing and feeling is wrong these desires are wrong you know and and how can I just make sure like I, I don't do anything that's going to dishonor God yes and I think that's such a common story and the thing that you're describing at the end there is even just the even though you didn't grow up in Christianity, it did not take you long to learn the self-policing that it is inherent in purity culture. Yes. And that especially for women perpetuates rape culture in the many ways that it makes everything about whether women are culpable for men's activities mm-hmm. or violence or crimes and forces women. And then by extension, because of the it's all in binary terms, queer folks and non-binary folks and trans folks to constantly be self-policing, to not be at fault for someone else's quote-unquote stumbling. Right. So I, I hear a lot of the common themes in even that short like bit of time that you had in college where, man, that stuff hits quick. It like, does, it hits- right. It, does, it takes like no time for all that to be internalized. You know, like no time at all. The thing that I want to name about rape culture before we start is that anytime something is, we're calling something a culture, it means that it is built in. Mm-hmm in practices and music and language and ideology into everything that we do. And so no one has to say, we encourage people to be assaultive or criminal in their activity. We're looking at the underlying implicit narratives and messages that create a reality. And so as we do that, I would love if you could describe rape culture and what that is, because I know a lot of folks have heard that before, but I think it takes a really specific tone in Christian space. So can you define what is Christian rape culture? Oh, yes. I mean, you've you've said it a bit already. I mean, I think when we think of rape culture, generally speaking, it's it's an environment. It's a social environment that allows sexual violence to be normalized and justified. And it comes with the very insidious, evil nature of blaming the victim. Mm -hmm. And so we see that in Christian rape culture in that we we do as Women who are taught that what we do and say and how we dress and behave is going to cause our brothers in the Lord to stumble, then that thereby makes us responsible for their actions. And there's no accountability for men who would seek to harm women. And that happens Mm. 
throughout these cultural, these Christian rape spaces. Yes. And not even just that it allows people to be perpetrators of explicit violence and to not have any accountability when accused, but creates a culture in which people who do not believe themselves to be violent or are not actively perpetrating violence are still perpetuating a system that causes harm and that may lead them to forms of sexual assault and abuse and violence that they wouldn't even claim for themselves. Right. That's absolutely true. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's it's just detrimental both ways because then you've painted, you know, this is like very, very broad strokes. So all, all men cannot control themselves and, and all women need to make sure that they are buttoned up and appropriate in every way, shape and form or else they're going to just wreak havoc in the space yes. that they're that they're in you know yeah. and i'm like what like if i wear a button down like a man's gonna stumble straight out of his marriage and like into my arms or yes. something like it's a very confusing yes, dynamic absolutely absolutely <laughs> and i want to name to that end too that like you're naming a specific and really egregious binary that says that like men are and i think a lot of us have heard this in even sermons like men are visual creatures and women are emotional and we can talk about the theology that get that gets kind of built out of but I want to name on the front end that I know that you and I are going to talk in a lot of binary terms, yes. but there's a specific way that transphobia plays a huge part in this conversation mm-hmm. because trans folks are erased when we frame men as hypermasculine and hypersexual and women are always needing to be convinced or coerced a little bit into sex. And it, one, it makes men who are sexually assaulted, which happens, mm-hmm. really, um, it disincentivizes any kind of reporting or any kind of really taking seriously their own experiences and traumas. But then it also supports this narrative that trans women are just men who are needing to be, you know, bound even more to protect like real women and kids. And so I, I say that with like as many air quotes as you can possibly use. Right. But want to name that there's this erasure and a specific demonizing of trans women that creates the context for violence and murder of trans women Mm -hmm. at the hands of people who identify as As, Christian men and that's rooted in theology and binary genders. Absolutely. I'm glad. I'm so glad that you named that because I even had on my notes, like we are, we're going to say so, so much like man and woman, but we cannot have this conversation without naming that. And, and it's so harmful to put anyone in these, in these categories because then for so many reasons, right? But when you deviate even a little bit outside of it, then you are therefore an enemy. Then you are therefore outside of God's will. You know, you're therefore the the problem to be solved. And mm-hmm. and I I remember hearing um the message I heard was that men are like fountains. That's the visual that I received. That men are like fountains and they're always ready to go at any time. And that women are like wells and wells need to be stirred up because their, their waters are still, but they need to be stirred up when the time is right. So imagine being in this situation when you're like, well, okay. Um, men are just always ready. Like that's all that they're, they're, they're thinking about wanting all the time. They're ready to go any second. Like you said, oh my gosh, did, did, is my, but my collared shirt, not up to my, my chin is this person going to jump on me? <laughs> and yeah. then as a woman, uh, what if, what if you actually desire sex? What if you actually desire intimacy? So what does that make you then? Like you're like, how dare you fit outside of this construct? 
and, and I think we're starting to name some of the ways that rape, what rape culture looks and sounds like. Mm-hmm. But there's this idea that women are supposed to be pure and modest yes. and then in marriage are suddenly supposed to be like so sexy and responsible for men's fidelity. So I've heard so many sermons that are like, wives, it's your job to mm-hmm. make sure your husbands don't cheat by doing whatever they want sexually for them. Yes. And so there's a way that like you are either you're an object either way if you are a woman Mm -hmm. you are an object because you are just a sexual object like a pornographic object essentially or you're an object of someone stumbling you're like a stumbling block and suddenly you're supposed to make this switch in marriage just like from like not having sex to having sex and have that be good you're suddenly pure and chaste and modest and covering every inch of your body and then you're so so unbelievably sexy and that's just like for your husband Mm -hmm. it's very very confusing yeah very it really is because you're who are you in inside of that? You know, I don't know. It, it, it's talked about in such a way because of so much fear. You know, we don't we don't want people to stumble. We don't want, you know, teenagers having sex. We don't want young adults doing this. And it, it, but it's like, how, how do you reconcile this 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 message of sex is good, but not now? Sex is good, but not now. Yeah. And if you do this, then you are going to be responsible and you're going to be at fault. Oh, but but once it's your wedding night, have fun. Woo! You know, and like talk about it in the <laughs> toast and be like, oh, we know what you're going to do tonight. Wink, wink, honk, honk. Like that's just, like you said, like that's such a leap. It's such a yes. leap. Let's talk more about some of the pieces of rape culture and what it looks like and some of the assumptions that it plays out. And then we'll talk some about the theology. Because I just think that there's so many, even as you described, I've never heard that like fountain and well yeah. bit. Yes. Yes. But but if that's the case, there is the like the violence inherent in that is like, men, you need to make like you're going to experience some resistance because women aren't going to always be ready for sex. And so there's a way that coercion becomes even a part of that story, even though we're using what would seem like a really benign metaphor. Mm-hmm. It is to say like, men, you're just like you're always going and like you just might need to make it happen a little bit. And mm-hmm. because there is a hypersexualization in toxic masculinity, there's a way that then men are incentivized to interpret everything that women do either as resistance or as welcome or as predation. Mm-hmm. Like I think about, uh, there was one, uh, maybe it was James Dobson, I think, who tells this story about how he like had a fight with his wife one day. And as he was like going on a drive to clear his head, like a woman drove up beside him and like looked at him and smiled at him and then went off to a side road. And he knew that that was like her propositioning him somehow. And so there was a way that, because he was so primed to see himself as like hypersexual and women as so dangerous to his well-being and to his spirituality and to his fidelity that everything got interpreted as sex. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely everything does. When when you think that men can't control themselves and women are out to make them stumble, then how do you view each other outside of, of that binary? Like, how do you do that? Billy Graham rule, you know, like we can't, don't ride in a car, don't be alone, don't, you know, like someone's going to come after your, your, your partner if you do this or if you don't do that. And, and it's sad, really. I mean, I had friends who were married before me who I genuinely, like from like the most pure place, wanted to be a good wife. You know, like I really wanted to be a good wife as I thought it was meant to be. And I would ask them if, oh, well, I'm not sure about like, oh, we're just kind of in a rough patch or we had, you know, a little argument. And the response every time from a particular friend was, well, have you given him sex? Have you given him enough sex? Have you done this for him? Have you done that for him? And um, this is a former friend. So I will say that now. (laughs) But (laughs) um, (laughs) things have changed and evolved. But, you know, uh, 
years ago when I'm in this place of still like, how can I do things the right way? And every faith space I'm in and around is saying, this is what you need to do to make your husband happy and does not consider or even ask the question of what I might need. Mm-hmm. Then how does that not perpetuate this very idea? Yes. Yeah. And that like sex in that situation is all about men's gratification. Right. And so like, if a man comes, then sex is good. And that's like what that means. And that's right. And what that, I don't think what we real, what we don't realize is that it creates a context in which defense of men's well-being becomes the center of our sexual culture. And, and you know, like, I just want to name that like the term rape culture is a, is a coin term and it's been out there since the, the 70s, 70s, but really yeah. came to prevalence mm-hmm. in like 2012-ish mm-hmm. with, I think it was the Steubenville case, which was like two high school teenagers, high school age teenagers raped a young woman. And there was like video and photo kind of evidence against them in every way. And the media's kind of response to that was to essentially ask what I call the Brock Turner question, who Mm -hmm. was a swimmer who sexually assaulted someone in a horribly, horribly violent way. Yes. And there was proof of it. And people kept asking the question, like, well, what will this mean for his future? For his future, his future, his promising future. Yeah. And Stanford, that's not far from where I grew up. So that one really hit particularly close to home. But, you know, what if, if, if we charge him now, what about his future? He's so bright. Yes. What? Yeah. And in that, like the concept is that like rape culture always worries more about how an allegation is going to affect the person who is accused rather than the experience of trauma, pain and being the victim of crime Mm -hmm. of the accuser and of the victim and of the survivor of that incident. And so there's a way that like men are always given the benefit of a doubt. Their future is always considered. And in Christian spaces, we then see the man as representative of the mission and the mission as representative of God and therefore to give the man grace or mercy or the mm-hmm. benefit of a doubt is actually a spiritual act to protect the mission of God and therefore God, God's self. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we don't want to see um, a crack in the armor. You know, we don't want to see anything chip away or fall apart. So as long as we uphold the the maleness and, and make sure that the male is, is, is always having his needs met then we're all closer to God that way. Didn't you know mm-hmm. that, Brandy? We're all closer to God that way. <laughs> I mean, it's awful because it's so incredibly painful. Like, I, I can just tell tell my story. And it's not even... It's, the thing is that there's so many inaccuracies that aren't even true, that aren't even what you might be feeling. It might not be true of your relationship. It might not be true of your marriage. But then you you wonder what's wrong if, if that's not the case, like you and your partner can have be on the same page about this entire conversation when it comes to sexual intimacy. But then you hear from the church, well, this is how it's supposed to be. You're not doing it right. And then you go back and question everything. And it's just very sad. I think back to how I really wanted to do my best. And I felt like I'm, I'm not ever going to live up to this you know I'm already tainted remember because I wasn't a virgin um so I was already tainted and trying to like make do things the right way and now in my marriage all I hear is like oh the solution for everything is keep him happy and do this and and never say no and I'm like that's what like how where where do you find this and like yeah 
well, let's parse some of those things yeah. out. Because like, <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit about Bible and how this shows up in the church. Because there's so many, and I and I think we'll fill out some more of the things around rape culture mm-hmm. that are prevalent as we do this. But can you talk a little bit about where you see this coming from theologically, or where you see it showing up in the church? Because I know that those are intertwined. Because a lot of the stuff, not surprising here, that supports rape culture is extra biblical interpretations of particular texts or ideas that are rooted in the gendered binaries and norms that we've already talked about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there are so many books during this time, so many, (laughs) that have perpetuated this message, um, love and respect, and, you know, I've kissed dating goodbye, and just a number of books that have all taken what they believe to be scripturally sound, you know, evidence and work that, that lend itself to saying, that as long as the husband is being honored and submitted to and having his needs met, then the wife will have whatever she needs. And so like we see, for example, in first Corinthians seven, three and five, you know, the scripture reads a husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does in the same way a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer and in some context in fasting, then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And what's interesting is that will be pulled out by itself outside of any context. And it will only be the woman does not own her body. The woman does not have a right to her body. And the woman has to make sure that she is like you said earlier keeping the fire going keeping herself snatched and looking good and don't let herself you know like fall off or 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 do anything because her husband will have a wandering eye if she's not keeping herself all the way together if she's not giving him what he needs when he wants it as often as he wants it if she ever tells him no then that is against the gospel and and Mm -hmm. that is is you know just one of of many examples and that I've, I've heard, you know, just in counseling and, you know, premarital counseling and, and in different spaces that this is something that you, you must uphold. And so, mm-hmm. I don't know, I would just, I would love to hear more about what you think about that. That passage is one of many where we see that it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, where the text, when people say they're Bible literalists and they're like, well, the Bible clearly says, and yes. I'm like, well, the Bible clearly says in this situation, but we interpret it with like a giant stick of whiteout mm-hmm. that assumes that like, because we, we have a lot of assumptions underneath it where it's like, okay, yeah, like a husband should, perf- you know, like should fulfill his marital duty, but because wives are sub- to submit to husbands, his hierarchical authority cancels out the second half of that text exactly. more often than it doesn't. Exactly. And it, and it makes it seem as though women and girls are in the way of God's mission if they are not useful to men in their lives, particularly sexually in this case. And so that first Corinthians passage for me is so exhausting because there's so much mutuality in it and right. so much uh, egalitarianism mm-hmm. in it. And yet when when it's used in context, it's about women supporting, it's typically about women supporting the mission of men by making sure that, I think that the metaphor that I've heard used before is that uh, the whole world is pornographic and men have a Rolodex of images that are constantly in their head and it's their wife's job to interrupt that Rolodex so they stay faithful. I have actually heard something similar. I, and you just brought it back to my mind. Thank you for that, oh, no. Brandy. Thank you. No, no, no. But it's true, though. It's it's true. And and that's the I love the I mean, I don't love that it happens, but I love the 
the imagery that you've given of the whiteout because that's exactly what happens. You know, I know it says this and it goes both ways, but really what's most important is whatever he needs. Like that was, that's like really what was implied. Was it though? (laughs) Yes. And I think what's super problematic to me about that is that that kind of message gets preached from the pulpit Mm -hmm. to married people, but unmarried people are hearing that message too. Exactly. And so it's giving women and girls the the notion that men are just inherently kind of like, you know, they have needs and they're going to get them however they need to. And like, our bar for men should be so low and we should take responsibility for men's actions. And I see that showing up in dating relationships so often where a lot of my friends have like felt like failures in their relationships because they can't like keep this like quote unquote good Christian man around. And I'm like, that's because he's a mediocre, not a good, whatever. Right. (laughs) He's not actually a good Christian man. (laughs) But those kinds of notions, I think, play out a lot if you if you assume if you are taught to assume that men deserve something from you yes and men deserve something from everything because you see that happen in every level of the church of of church particularly evangelical churches that live in hierarchical space Mm -hmm. right because it it, then it is not just talking about a marital situation then because you see that in the church, you see that in the authority, whoever the authority figure is in that church space, you know, do you dare tell them no when they cross the line? Do you dare tell them no? Are you going to dare, you know, dishonor the man of God by denying what they want from you? Mm. And hence church too. Yes, and because most churches don't have HR departments, there are no accountability structures, and this is how rape culture is perpetuating yes. is that there, when there is no accountability structure and a lot of assumptions, men are assumed innocent all the time and in Christian spaces assumed holy. Yes. And women are considered wholly untrustworthy or trying to like bring a good man down. Right. And I think that theologically where I hear this taught is out of Adam and Eve. Like Eve oh. was the one who was deceived and she <laughs> brought down Adam. Women are emotional and men are logical. And like if women are going to do the like whole curse of Eve thing, then it's going to bring good men down because like every woman is going to is like out to get you are going to bring you down. And I know in my youth group experience, there was this teaching that was like, women, don't be seductive. Don't you got to be modest, which is right in rape culture. The extension of that is the did you deserve to did be you deserve, assaulted? Yeah, did like, you what ask did you for do? this? What did you do to yeah, ask for this? Mm-hmm. What did you wear? How much were you drinking? drinking. Mm-hmm. Did you give mixed signals? Right. All of those things. This is an extension of it. But in the theological space, it came out as kind of every woman is, a, is out to get you guys. Girls, don't be a stumbling block. And the texts that were used were the like, poem about the adulterous woman in proverbs comes out of her house and is like calling into the streets and they're like see like sex is everywhere people are trying to get you everywhere and then they people love christians love to use potiphar's the story of potiphar's wife Mm -hmm. potiphar is a high-ranking political official his wife and him are affluent they have joseph who's a slave she accuses him of assault he runs away and the church uses that instead of saying hey, what do we do with the class and kind of ethnic differences that are playing out to create a power differential here and instead say, see, women are just out to get good men and accuse them and false allegations are everywhere. One of the first sins that we see in the Bible is a false allegation against a good man. Mm -hmm. A good man. Yes, it's always about protecting that good man. Mm. (sighs) When I think to that end, Part of where I see this playing out in Bible stuff is that we love to point at stories 
of women who bring quote unquote good men down. And then we reframe stories of men's violence in their favor. I think specifically about the story of David and Bathsheba and how many times I heard like, well, she shouldn't have been bathing on the roof. Yes. I know we were going to go there. Yes. Again, yeah, let's talk about yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, she, she, she should have known better. I mean, that's really what it comes down to because David was beloved by God and she should have known better. And the fact that it can be so, I mean, I think on, I feel like you and I are, are both kind of here and there on Twitter, but if you're on Twitter, you know, like every quarter there's like a resurgence of this conversation on Twitter. Like every quarter, there's there's a conversation about it. And it's just so, it's infuriating and telling. Because if this is how men, particularly white males, are interpreting, at least in this public sphere, interpreting, because it, it for sure is happening in church spaces across the board. But if this is how they're interpreting this story, how are they interpreting it in real life? Like, mm-hmm. how is that reflecting in who they're voting for? How is it reflecting in what Supreme Court justices they're supporting? How is it interpreted in their own family dynamics or lack thereof, but how they interact with with women who they work with, with women who are at the church, with women who they might, you know, run into in the grocery store, you mm-hmm. know? And so it, it's just, uh, it's just one of those things, Brandy, where it's mind boggling but also not because it's so prevalent, you know, like, cause how could we ever view? It's so much easier to view uh, a woman as, as a harlot, as a slut, as a whore, as one who asked for it. That is a real, real quick, easy jump to make. Like that's, that's not a jump at all. That's a real quick, like short trajectory of like, oh yeah, I can see she probably did do that. Oh yeah, she should have known better than to be up on that roof bathing day, you know, like mind her business. No, she shouldn't have known better because someone was clearly going to be looking who shouldn't have been looking and therefore she's caused all of this to happen. But mm-hmm. it is, it's so ingrained that uh, the golden goose, the pedestal, it, it's men. So so how can we really believe that men could be capable how can we really believe that they would just do this? And there must have been a reason. There has to be a reason. I mean, come on, it's David. Come on, this mm-hmm. isn't your average Joe. It's David. How could we just, how could we at all implicate him in his own actions? Yeah. And clearly, yes. you know, you can see my facial expression. I hope your audience can hear it. Clearly, it is, I'm being very facetious. But, but that's what we do because um, if men acknowledge this, power dynamic men who let me rephrase that or state it more clearly men who desire to hold on to and cling to this power dynamic and cling to this idea that they are to be absolved and cling to this idea that they are untouchable and cling to this idea that that they cannot fall from grace because they've been called to whatever positions they've been called to then they will continue to perpetuate the stories in the way that they want them to be interpreted because anything else would implicate themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think to that end, what, what I'm hearing you describing is who gets to have ownership over their own bodies and who gets to have agency. Mm-hmm. Where um, there's a way that a lot of pastors in, the, in what you're describing and even this David and Bathsheba theologizing 
it's well david doesn't have any agency because he like, goes up to the roof and then she's there she's just there right and like she has all the agency because she's the one who's like naked and god forbid taking a bath cleaning herself like a human does and as much as uh, a lot of those folks see themselves as not, not believing something like midrash, so like telling the stories between the lines, they're like, well, we know that women want attention and want to have the eyes of men. So like she clearly knew what she was doing when she went up there to seduce him by taking a bath. And, and so I think there's some ways that we have to ask the question how rape culture determines who gets to have agency mm-hmm. and ownership in any given situation and therefore who is to blame. Because a lot of rape culture really is about who has authority and who is to blame. And I think that one of the ways that I've been deeply concerned about how this plays out is in the binary of there's us in the church and then there's the world out there. And we define ourselves as like holy and grace-filled, redeemed by Jesus and white as snow or whatever. And we determine people out there as evil, violent Mm -hmm. aggressors. And what that ends up meaning is that when we combine that with abstract notions of sin, it's like, well, you know, we just got to like redeem the brother because he just sinned and like Jesus, you know, insert Jesus crucified to save him. So we need to like bring him back. But what we also do is we set up all perpetrators as out there. And that Mm -hmm. is inherent in common rape culture, too, which is like there are real rapists and there's like rape, rape. And then there's you know, like just us fooling around. There's locker room talk. There's right. Like it was just a joke. And because we set up a dynamic in non-Christian rape culture, that is there are real rapists and then there's other people, but the church sets up that binary in distinctive terms of everything bad is out there. And I remember when I was growing up, the way that that got set up was like, you know, hip hop music is so like hip hop music is so misogynistic. You got to protect your like family from the, you know, the thug out there and you can hear the racialized language mm-hmm. of how the white evangelical church set up a system that keeps them completely unaccountable right. for their participation in rape culture and also creates a racialized violent system that assumes and reinforces the idea of white women's purity yes, and then defends that with violence and normalizes violence in how people engage with sex because jealousy, anger, defense, and militarism become a part of our toolkit Mm -hmm. to fight the world where the real rapists and where the real sinners and where the real deviants are and don't realize the ways that that gets intersected with race and class in a specific way. Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you this, Brandy. In these white evangelical church spaces that you have been a part of, have you ever heard a pastor actually say the word rape? And actually have have a conversation or preach a sermon on this, whether it's David and Bathsheba or just this topic in general. Have you ever heard them say? It? Because I'm going to say I have not. I you know we want to talk about uh, tiptoeing around it first of all. Some not even acknowledging that that this is what it is, but using other language like that soft language. Because again, like you said, rape is for the monsters outside of these four walls of our building. But, you know, maybe sexual assault, maybe like other things, maybe it was just inappropriate behavior. Maybe it was just mm-hmm. the temptation. So I just, I'm just I'm genuinely curious if you've actually ever heard it addressed head on. Uh, OK, I think there's there's two questions there. And because I think that I have heard people talk about rape, but because it was because I was a part of churches that did verse by verse Bible studies mm. and verse by verse preaching series. And what I remember most specifically is. And, and I don't have, honestly, I think Jewish scholars are far better suited than we are to mm-hmm. discuss this particular incident in right. scripture. And I think that when 
modern Christians have gotten their hands on this Jewish text have used it in irrevocably harmful ways. And that's how I experienced it. And it's mm -hmm. Genesis 34 and the rape of Dinah. Yes. Okay. Which mm -hmm. is this story in which, right, like Jacob's, Jacob's daughter is raped by a Canaanite, right. by some Canaanites. And Jacob does this thing where he's basically, and, and then her rapist falls in love with her and wants to keep her. So you have her set up as an object who is being used essentially in negotiations. Mm -hmm. Jacob negotiates by being like, okay, well, everyone in your clan needs to be circumcised because we can't be with anyone who's uncircumcised. But two of her brothers, so Jacob's sons, in the middle of the night go and like murder a whole bunch yes, of people yeah. as revenge. Mm -hmm. And then they end up cutting up her body and like sending it out to the corners of the earth as an example of how sinful the world is, is how it's interpreted. Mm -hmm. That's like the conclusion a lot of Christians have taken. So I've heard people talk about rape, mm -hmm. but mostly to talk about like look how dark and deeply sinful the world is. That right. this is how far it's gone. Yes. And look how sexualized our culture is. I think it's the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah is used mm -hmm. to demonize queer folks, where it's like, well, yeah. look how God responds. And like, look what happens right. when the world just gets so bad. Like everyone gets burned in sulfur. And you're like, that's not what the passage is about. Yes. That's how it's used. Mm -hmm. And then I think what ends up happening is when you combine that kind of conversation about rape that like really just ignores the rape part or says like, Look how bad that was. And you take like the most literally the most monstrous kind of way that you, you like multiple people being murdered, all this like circumcision that's happening that then gets like bait and switched because they all get killed and then they chop her up and send her. It's like horribly, horribly morbid. And like, like I was like tearing up earlier thinking about her story because I was just like, this person is being thrown back and forth. And in rape culture, women are objects. Mm -hmm. So you take that idea. Sorry, this is longer than I intended for it to be. No, this is great. Uh, and then you combine it with the missions endeavors that my church was involved with growing mm. up, which are all like, so it was like female genital mutilation, human, human trafficking, and uh, like poor kids in other countries. And so it was like, you, this is the real violence. This is the real harm. So like when, you know, brother so-and-so hugs you uncomfortably long every week at church, that's not like rape culture. Mm -hmm. That's not violence. That's not invasive that's not unwanted touching because the real evil is like this other thing that's done by people of color across the globe that we give our money to try to fix and help mm -hmm. so i've heard rape talked about some but never as something that we are responsible for it's always something that describes how bad the world out there is oh yes no i'm i am take all the time that you need because that was really that was really the question that i was asking like have you ever heard in a way that implicates ourselves you know and and that yeah, if it's other people, if we're telling other stories, if we're referencing the Bible, because this is what happened, you know, then that's one thing, but never to implicate ourselves. And it's, it's, you bring up human trafficking, for example, and, and gosh, how we will really spend our time and energy and money to fight against that, which is an evil that needs to be fought against, but while at the same time, uh, not wanting to hold our own accountable right where we are in our church spaces because mm -hmm. it's not quote unquote as bad or can we even trust the person who made whatever accusation or the devil's real busy and trying to you know make the you know coming for our church and and you know we're going to spiritualize it and it's just there's 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 an attack is an attack on our leaders so we can see the the reality of how horrible and terrible something is as long as it's not us mm -hmm. 
And it assumes that in many ways that, well, okay. <laughs> in all of that, church structure becomes really important. Mm -hmm. Because I think the reason that that kind of ideology can be so pervasive is because our internal systems always assume that women and queer people cannot be believed because of some kind of inherent inferiority. Right. And as I've been thinking about this more and more and kind of thinking about in particular cases where right, we talk about something like human trafficking and then suddenly like someone like Josh Duggar come, it, you know, it comes out that Josh Duggar has yes. been like soliciting child pornography forever or like mm -hmm. that Christianity Today is like one of their former employees like was arrested for trying to have sex with a minor like that there are all these things that we say are inherently evil but we have like actually no guardrails to mm -hmm. keep people in our own not just accountable but prevent like we were like we try to prevent like women and girls from showing any part of their body and we try to que keep queer people from well literally from being queer but also right. from expressing queerness in any way while all of these men in leadership who have power and who have more like more um capacity to express their agency because of wealth or status are out here without structures of accountability. And so I've become more concerned mm -hmm. over and over again with churches that don't have HR departments or okay. that don't use their HR departments because part of rape, rape culture is a lack of systems to keep people accountable mm -hmm. for their assaultive activities, their unwanted touching, their verbal harassment, their gaslighting of victims and survivors, all of those things. And so I I'm curious what you think about like the systemic pieces of how rape culture is kept in place. And if there's any kind of the theology that goes behind that, that you've thought about. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I, I just, uh, this happens if we, if you look at a business and, and how many situations that we've seen where there's been rape, sexual assault, something like this happening in a business where there is an HR department where there is, you know, supposedly these structures in place. There should be no surprise that in an institution where we, there's not that happening at all, that it's too prevalent. And I think that is, it's the, the systemic piece of it is again, pointing back to what you said earlier of viewing it as like us versus them. Like, but that's just out in the world. And so they need to have those guardrails because they're just all evil. Like they're just all evil out there. And, but mm -hmm. we're good and we're pure. So we don't need to have these in place because like we're, you know, we're not going to do those, those bad things because we are, you know, in the world, but not of it. Um, but the same language occurs, the same actions occur inside the church as they do outside the church. The same shaming techniques occur inside the church as they do outside the church when it comes to, you know, like you said, who gets blamed for what and, and the assumed motives for people. And so, um, I mean, I just echo what you said because it's, it's like this belief that there, there isn't a need for there to be structures of accountability in these faith based, based spaces because we are above such things because we are so holy and we are so, and, and even though there's, you know, at the same time we can think about, Oh, pride comes before the fall. And you know, we, we're all sinners and we need to be redeemed. Like the same way we can hold those scriptures with such tension and, and say those on Sunday and make sure everybody knows that like they're all sinners and they have to just fight every day of their life to not sin and not stumble. And then the next breath say, but we're one of the good ones. Like we're, mm -hmm. we're in, in the good category. And, and particularly when I think about, I shared this with you a little bit offline. It's, it's like a subtle example, but it, it 
plays right into this. Um, bodies are bodies, right? Like our bodies are our bodies. And when, for me as a black woman, I, I've shared this story before. Um, I was in trying to make it short, but I was in a situation in this predominantly white space and, um, a group of us who were black were watching drumline or one of those, you know, like HBCU based like movies, you know? Um, (laughs) and a, a very slender white woman who was working with us at the time walked in and saw it was like the, the pinnacle of the movie where it was like the halftime show. Right. So, you know, the dancers were out there dancing and the majorettes and, um, and they were curvaceous black women. And she walked in and she said, ew, that's disgusting. And she was speaking to now this very, you know, slender white woman had the tightest, tightest fitting little yoga pants on little midriff shirt, whatever. And, but these, you know, curvaceous black women that she saw on screen who had their, you know, uniform costumes dance outfit was disgusting to her and I mm-hmm. and I remember that because I can more readily identify with those black women on screen you know I I have curves I am curvaceous and I'm like wow if she thinks they're disgusting she must think that I'm disgusting now fast forward to years later I'm in a church it's actually a predominantly black church I just had my second child and literally didn't have clothes that I felt comfortable in and I grabbed a pair of leggings and, you know, a long top because I'm still trying to, you know, like make sure I cover my big booty, you know, and all these things. And the first Sunday that I come back and I'm ready to sing um, for worship, I was pulled aside and told that I needed to come back with a longer shirt or not wear those pants again. And I was mortified. I was so embarrassed mm-hmm. because I had the same I had the same feeling inside the church at that moment. And I was told this by a black woman. Then Mm -hmm. I did as this white woman outside the church told me years before or said years before, because it was this shame that was supposed to come because my body is my body. And, and so this is a way that it's subtle, but it's so important because these systems are in place for us to, to walk around and, and carry this weight. That's not ours to carry. And, and we're here to carry, you know, we're told that we have to be so responsible that even if you just had a baby, you got to make sure, you, you know, like whatever you're wearing, uh, obviously I'm not looking at you. I just had a baby with my husband, you know, <laughs> like what, what in the world? <laughs> um, but, but it, it all plays into it, right? Because if, if you have the people at the top who don't need to have accountability, because they're just holy and they're, they're called to this position. But then you have, you know, people who are, you know, sitting in the pews or trying to just sing on in worship. And they're the ones who are told constantly, you're doing that wrong. You need to be more careful, you know, like all eyes are on you. So all the attention goes to, to them. And meanwhile, th- those who are holding authority continue doing what they're doing and no one and none the wiser. Yes. And even just like the notion that your body is a liability. Right. And that you wearing yoga pants and a long shirt is somehow causing harm or risk to the community rather than trying to excavate the foundations of why we would see that as being sexual to begin with. I think this comes up for me and this is like really, really fucked up for sure. When I hear 
men, like pastors specifically, talking about dress codes for youth group mm. or like elementary school trips where they're like, little girls can't wear a bikini because it's sexual. And I'm like, to who? To whom is this sexual? And what you're doing is revealing something about what you think about bodies. If you think that a seven-year-old wearing a bikini is a sexual thing, or if you think that a mm. middle schooler who's going to camp and who isn't wearing like a 2XL t-shirt while going down a water slide is somehow like more safe for people than her wearing like a normal thing that covers her body. And it then demonizes the bodies of queer folks by assuming mm -hmm. that any kind of deviation from that is out of God's design and therefore needs to be similarly policed. And so I'm hearing that like your body and your body is a liability and like queer people and women's and non-binary folks and trans folks desires are all liabilities and their well-being and their personhood is a liability mm -hmm. because it somehow impacts or shapes or deters or derails masculinity which is what is at the center of god's plan yes. for the mission of god and the people of god yeah absolutely yeah like i said it's, it's baked in no one's asking why why would our bodies and how we present them on a sunday or a wednesday be the problem and not asking the question of well what's behind that well then it creates notions for assumed guilt mm -hmm. like men are never guilty because they carry the mission women and queer folks are always guilty because they're inherently problematic to the mission it feels like there's ways because all of these things create a reality where men do not have to check the instincts that shape and keep them captive to rape culture in a way that harms them as well. Mm -hmm. And because all of this assumes that like, we're trying to protect the vulnerable, we're trying to like, because in part modesty is, you know, I've been having some discussions about modesty, and we're gonna do a whole episode on mm -hmm. it, but how modesty in some ways should at its very best be to protect that which is like precious or vulnerable. And that is not to say like, cover up because everything is sexual. It's, it's like a whole other concept, right, I think. Right. But what ends up happening is that when all of those pieces come together and then we combine that with like sin and the world out there and the only real like the only real kind of rape is a rape that's by a stranger. There doesn't even have to be an assumption within churches, especially when you consider yourself family, that the conditions of rape start before rape happens mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that the behaviors that we are excusing protecting, perpetuating, and letting go in the cultures that we're creating in churches, when brought to their fullest extent, create violence. And so I think that kind of notion of like, well, we're family, we deal with things internally, mm -hmm. we circle the wagons to make sure that criminal things, eh, like, we deal them with them as an elder board, that all of those things keep that culture from being interrogated at all until it all blows up like we're seeing with the main example i've been thinking of is robbie zacharias yes. international ministries oh, yes. and mm. uh, yeah do you want to give people a sense of what that was oh, talk gosh. a little bit about that because you seem to have some feelings <laughs> no, no, about you, it no you you go ahead i'm gonna get, i'm gonna get my thoughts because i'm gonna jump in yeah so robbie zacharias is a or was a christian leader mm -hmm. who was most popular for his apologetics yes. so doing like academic defense of the scriptures in public. He was like a really famous debater. And for year, decades and decades and decades, women had been bringing forward allegations of abuse and assault specifically, like, and I'm gonna be really explicit because this is what we're talking yes. about. Like specifically he hired 
different women to be on st- on his various like types of adjacent staffs as masseuses mm-hmm. and then would sexually assault them or grope them or masturbate in front of them and when people brought that up to Ravi Zacharias ministry international ministries they denied all allegations they didn't want to get want it to get in the way of the abuse and they refused to investigate it forever and just even just before he died he was still receiving like naked pictures of women mm-hmm. he was still soliciting those sorts of activities and it wasn't until after he died that they actually did the investigation. So there was never any accountability for Ravi Zacharias in life because the institution that he was a part of so cared about the mission yes. that they circled the wagons to prevent even themselves from doing appropriate levels of due diligence in their investigations. And so I think I talk about him because it's emblematic of Andy Savage and his megachurch in Memphis mm-hmm. and like how they you know did a standing ovation for him when he confessed that he had sexually assaulted someone when he was a youth pastor and it's the same as bill hybels who because i don't want to get it twisted like this is just uh conservative men in christian evangelical spaces bill hybels well i'm gonna use the word champion because it's a christian word for this stuff yes. but like championed egalitarianism <laughs> right while having two decades worth of either affairs mm-hmm. or inappropriate sexual conduct that was that people denied and wouldn't bring up and his whole elder board and pastoral staff had to quit because they had such an unintegrous process around mm-hmm. his abuse allegations. Yeah. And so I think there's lots of places like that where that family language, the mm-hmm. your body is a liability, like men are never held accountable and there's systems in place all play together in this rape culture experience. Yeah. And you saw me about come out of my skin because again, watching how um, when the allegations were finally examined in the wake of Ravi Zacharias's death and witnessing again the responses varying from this is horrible these poor women to I can't believe they did this they sullied the man of God and the mission of Mm -hmm. God what about all the people that he helped what about all the people that that he you know he fought the bible for you know, he convinced people, he made sure that he defended God. And now what about that? And and that is the crux of it. When we think of Christian rape culture is, is what are we willing to do to protect God and the men of God who, who are, have the, the great important cannot be tampered with mission to bring the word forward you know we Mm -hmm. we cannot ever question the the man of god because i've i've been told this specifically questioning the man of god is a direct reflection of how i view god and and that is something that is a prevalent belief within these systems as well so if i i i'm just want to be more astounded like you know when you're like surprised but you're like you shouldn't be (laughs) but but I just recall seeing so many of these responses and so many individuals who suddenly got really quiet who had been in the presence of of Ravi Zacharias for years and years and years and suddenly got very very quiet when this all came about and it just, it's, it's highly disturbing. It's highly disturbing how uh, it's okay for women to be 
assaulted, raped, abused, tossed aside because they're just like a casualty in, in the mission for the greater good. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real true terrible, awful thing is when a man of God has to step down from their position for their, you know, little three month period of getting their act together. And then they're back. Um, <laughs> you know, they got sat down and then they return, uh, because then now the mission can be carried forward. Yeah. And, and yeah. One, even in that the narrative keeping is about like, it's never about the stories of the, those who are harmed or who have less power. It's always about protecting the already powerful with power that already exists. Right. It's already there. It's just power on top of power on top of power. And I, and I want to name that these are like more extreme examples mm-hmm. of rape culture, but that this plays out in so many other aspects that we're not going to be able to get to all of today. But there are a few I just want to name because I know that there's things that people have experienced. And I know that many of us have been made to feel crazy for not or for, for believing that these things were not right or helpful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some of it is that like because of the ways that uh, like one of the things I'm thinking about and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this is the idea that um, because you're like no one's having sex before marriage, which is a lie. 87% of evangelical Christians have sex before they're married, I think, is what the statistic was. I might be off on that, but it was something, it was a huge amount. Right. And, uh, but if you assume that no one's having sex before they're married and that sex is just happening in marriage, and then you combine that with like submission narratives and all that, then there really is no such thing as marital rape. And I know a lot of churches are trying to do some correcting around mm. that, but I think because if, if complementarianism is a part of your worldview where you believe that people have distinct gender roles and women's role is to submit, mm-hmm. then you actually take away, you theologically take away women's ability to consent mm-hmm. because submission theologies override your own agency. And so I think that there's, I want to name that the prevalence and realness of marital rape has been held up by the church underneath narratives of complementarianism. I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that or we can move on to some other ones because I just want to name a few as we yeah, go. Yeah, no, I just I just second that. Yes, because what's most important then is to um, honor the head of your household. And by honoring the head of your household, you're doing what your husband desires, even if it's against your own desires and your own will. And so what, what you want, it does not matter because it's for the good of the mission. You know, the triangle picture, God is here and, you know, your husband and you. So as long as you're in that triangle, then then you're good, even if you are going against what you desire yourself. Yeah, and we're going to do a whole episode because I think we really missed it on headship mm-hmm. and like the idea of quote unquote covenant headship mm-hmm. and what that looks like and how that perpetuates a lack of agency. But the like kind of more minor version of that agency piece is what I saw a lot from my friends who went to Bible college, who had all these mediocre men coming up to them and telling them like, oh, God told me you're going to be my wife. Brandy, I had someone tell me that and I didn't even go to Bible college. Tell me about it. <laughs> I mean, I, I was I was at a church that... um. Of course, I didn't see it then, but I see it now <laughs> where as soon as a couple got together, it was like, great, how soon are you getting married? And so mm-hmm. it was like, really, like, how quickly can we like get these marriages up and going? You know, we don't want to burn. So let's get it moving. And I did have someone come up to me and actually was right in the parking lot after church one day <laughs> and said to me specifically that the Bible says that he who finds a good wife finds a good thing and 
I believe that you are my good thing. And the Lord has told me that, you know, we are to be together and, um, it was a no for me, but, (laughs) 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 uh, but, um, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard that a couple of times of like, no one else will ever love you. Like, like I will, you know, the Lord has said it. So it must be true. I have heard from the Lord that you are the person for me. And so then that, that gets into this like really convoluted, weird space of, well, then am I disobeying and being disobedient to God? If this man has heard so clearly from God that I am to be his. And if I dispute that, then I'm going against God, God themselves, you know? And I'm like, wait, Mm -hmm. wait, I was not at that place when, when that happened, I was like, no, I'm sorry. No. Um, (laughs) but I can see how that gets completely convoluted. Because, and, and it's said with such authority, with such knowing, with such, like, you can't say no to me because it's from God. Mm-hmm. Well, well, then why didn't God tell me that too? Yep. That's the I mean, question. that's the question. Why did, I mean, if, if, if we're supposed to be together in this, in mutuality, if we're supposed to be partners or supposed to be bound for life, <laughs> why didn't God tell me? Why didn't I get a heads up? Well, and in a world where women are taught to submit, it makes sense that many would lean into an external force controlling our bodies Mm -hmm. and telling us what to do, especially if it's in the name of God, which is, let's name it, spiritual abuse that is masking sexual abuse that then, when it finds its fruition, is sexual abuse and gender violence. Mm -hmm. Like, that is what that is. And it's the same thing. I think a very similar thing happens with our queer siblings, where when we are trying to figure out like what our sexuality is, when we're trying to like that, there are ways that people, pastors and pastoral figures will say like, I'm just concerned for you. I know that God has God's best for you. Mm -hmm. And so you get your agency pulled from you as related to your romantic or sexual life. And it is assumed that that needs to be controlled by another person. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of why a lot of churches slash almost all that I've, I've never heard a compassionate expression of yeah i've never heard any compassion given to queer folks who are victims and survivors of sexual violence none Mm -hmm. because it's seen more in the worldview as like judgment or what comes to a debased lifestyle or things like that and so rape culture is perpetuated against queer folks in that Mm -hmm. same way so i think that kind of like god told me you're my wife doesn't just have the impact of being confusing and just kind of fucking weird but it also has the kind of full-blown implication mm-hmm. of perpetuating the idea that people do not have control over or agency over their own bodies or lives or futures. Mm-hmm. And then the one other thing I wanted to name to that end is also around dating. Because I have, for as long as I can remember, hated the language of being pursued. Like the idea in church that part of rape culture is the assumption that some level of violence or aggression is inherently romantic, that being acted upon is a really good thing. And I get wanting to be wanted and like having people express desire. That's like a whole thing. But in the church and when you combine the church's desire that you create a gendered expression where like men need to pursue women in this like aggressive and dogged way, then you combine that with media notions of love and romance and tropes that say jealousy equals love. Mm -hmm. Like I think about like even like stupid stuff like Harry Potter, right? Harry doesn't realize that he has feelings for Ginny until she's kissing someone else and he feels like rage rise up in him. I think our definition of what love is 
shouldn't be predicated on jealousy or aggression or forcing something to happen. And so when something like being pursued, in what other point in your life is being pursued a good thing? Like if I'm being pursued by the police or I'm being pursued by a stranger, if I'm being pursued by an animal, it's never a good thing. But somehow in Christian space, because I think of rape culture, there's a way that that kind of aggression is interpreted as romantic and then normalizes really dysfunctional and almost violent and problematic behavior such that someone can say, God told me you're my wife, so I'm going to pursue that even without your consent. consent. Yeah, yeah. You might not have me on your podcast again for admitting this, but I've never seen or read any Harry Potter. That's all right. But it's all good because those examples are are everywhere, though. And that's exactly mm-hmm. right. It's, it's, you know, because it just reduces us to objects once again. Like our our role is to make sure that we're presentable, but not too pretty, not sexy, not in a way that's going to cause anyone to stumble. But we also do want to make sure that we're, we stand out enough so that the the right one person for us will find us amongst the crowd and then come after us. And then, you know, yeah, exactly what you said. If if uh, there's not this aggression, if there's not this this jealousy, if there's not this like, you, I'm going to make you mine, then is then can we call it real? And in too many of these spaces, we're told, no, it can't be real. If there's anything outside of, of this, like, you know, passionate pursual, which is really actually harmful. Yeah. And then if like women ask someone out or yeah. initiate any kind of physical intimacy first, or if queer folks, God forbid, pursue a relationship, it's considered this deviant, and I'm going to use this word intentionally, slutty thing. Yeah. Oh, That yes. then slut shaming becomes a part of this entire rape culture narrative, which I think is described even in your like story about worship leading. Yeah. There's a way that you are being slut shamed that, oh, you're trying to come and be provocative and sexy when like you're just like wearing pants um, <laughs> and that's what's going on. But because of the narrative that everything is sexual all the time and that, as you said, men are fountains, we have to, if we believe that in church spaces who believe authority submission paradigms means that someone is ordained to dominate mm-hmm. and it's not, it's women, not women or non-binary folks or trans or queer folks. It's not. It's not. And so that domination normalizes violence and shaming in ways that I think go far beyond stuff that we would think about in our day-to-day in church yeah. spaces. No, I'm glad that you specifically named that slut shaming because it's, it's exactly real. And it, and you know, like I said, at the top of the conversation, it, it even goes into marriage. You know, if, if it's, if a marriage that you're in and does not reflect what you've heard from the pulpit, which is exactly like, it's all about the men. They're going to do this. They're going to want this all the time. And, you know, I think, who is it? Sheila Gregoire, who does the, you know, she has all this research about that. And she has books on, on this, but she's researched, you know, and asked women. And this is just not a reality for every relationship. So whether it's just in the, if you want to ask someone on a date or whether it's in marriage and you want to initiate something to be told constantly, that's not your place. That's not your role. That's not, you know, what you're here to do. You know, your role is to lay on your back and take whatever he wants to give you. Mm-hmm. And that comes from the church. Mm-hmm. And so what do we think of women then in the church? We think very, very little of women, if that's the mm-hmm. message that we are, are telling our, our teens and our, our young people and our young women and our, you know, to be married, desiring to be married women. <laughs> um, the Great Sex Rescue, that's the, the book I was thinking of, but it's just a book that has a lot of research and she speaks 
against a lot of these books like love and respect that you know perpetuate mm-hmm. these different ideas um and continues to get a lot of of heat you know because <laughs> a lot of men are like no 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 we want to keep things the way that they are and, and i think what i'm hearing you say in part with that teaching is that there is a way that people are being compelled to do things that they are not comfortable with in order to keep in good standing with men in their lives yes and when we if we want to put that more explicitly pastors compel women to do things they aren't comfortable with to act outside of their consent Mm -hmm. therefore participate in or be pushed to or compelled to participate in assaultive practice i don't even know how to say this well because i'm like it it sounds like victim blamey but I think what I'm trying to communicate is that like pastors perpetuate rape culture by compelling people to violate, to go outside of their own consent, to push past their own consent mm-hmm. for the pleasure of other people. And right. you can hear like the, like the wrestling of the language because it's so deeply embedded. Yeah. Yeah. And it assumes that like, oh, I'm a person who's created to fulfill men's desires, yes. whether I want to date men or not, like that I'm an object of temptation and a means to an end. Mm -hmm. And like, we have to do a lot of unlearning of those things. And I want to name in the midst of that, that when we create such stark binaries and when we perpetuate rape culture in this way, we also deeply erase people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And I know we've talked about queer folks, but we erase people with disabilities and we create a context in which if you turn someone into either a sexual object or you completely desexualize them, which I think is what happens with people with disabilities. You eliminate all capacity for compassion for those folks when they are assaulted. And the rates of assault for disabled people Mm -hmm. are so high. And then the amount of public reporting is so low because we've so desexualized a group of people that happens within kind of Christian Mm -hmm. culture Mm -hmm. because we assume like certain types of sexuality. And so I just want to name that because there is already an assumption that people with disabilities consent doesn't matter like in normal life like in Mm -hmm. how we touch people with disabilities bodies or engage at all let alone sexually and so this kind of this rape culture i think disproportionately affects people with disabilities and disproportionately silences them because we already have a toolkit in the church that we've set to silence women and to silence queer folks that gets even more used to silence people with disabilities Mm -hmm. So with that very intense sentiment, I know you've done some hard work to unlearn some of this stuff. Can you talk to me briefly about some of the ways that you've unlearned that? Just because I want to give some people a uh, some paths forward as they're unlearning rape culture in themselves. Because I think a lot of people are going to start to notice things in their own experiences. And so I'm wondering if there's some ways that you would advise or that you have used that have been helpful for your own unlearning. Yeah, I think for me, um, so much of the unlearning has been to let go of the lie that my body is not a good body. Um, Because so much of, for my particular story, it was, I should feel bad that I have curves or that if I'm, you know, compared to the white European standard of beauty, if we're all wearing the same exact outfit, I'm going to look different in mine because I have hips and, <laughs> and, uh, and a large butt and, you know, and that's something I should feel shame about because I, I'm not doing enough to cover 
cover myself. I'm not doing enough to hide myself. And it's not just about the clothes because that, that seeps into the very essence of who I am. And, and then I find myself shrinking because unless I'm in a space, because I do have experiences in both like white evangelical spaces and, you know, the black church, like I named earlier, but what I realized was that in whatever space I was in, I would shrink because I would be mm. so concerned that, okay, am I, am I giving off the impression that I'm seeking this attention? Am I giving off this impression that I'm, I'm asking for it? Am I giving off the impression that, you know, I smiled in this person's direction and now his wife's going to think that I, that I want him, you know? And it was so, um, it was just so maddening because like I, it got to the point where that's what I was thinking about constantly was how am I being perceived when I'm showing up mm-hmm. in these different spaces. And, and that was not a way for me to get close to God. Like that was not a way for me to love myself. That was not a way for me to honor the skin that I'm in, the body that I'm in mm-hmm. and the experiences that I've had, you know, whether there are some that I would not want to repeat or some that I've learned hard lessons from some that I do hold regret, but they're still all mine and they, they're still all what make me, me. So for me, it was, it was truly like, it's, I mean, it may sound simplistic, but it was not at all like a, a, just a, here's a one, two step process, but I really had to learn to love myself in the skin that I'm in and know that it is good that, that Mm -hmm. I am a good creation and that there's nothing I need to fix or change to appease other people's comfort because that's what people have put on me. That's not what God has deemed to be true about the situation. And, and I didn't do anything to, to bring this on myself, you know, <laughs> to bring these thoughts mm-hmm. on myself. So for me, it, it came down to a lot of, of having to, to learn to love myself again, you know, or, and maybe mm-hmm. for the first time because I had let so many other people's perceptions and opinions of me be the ruling perception and opinion of myself. Yeah, totally. And is there a piece of advice you'd give some folks as they're trying to reclaim their theology from rape culture or as they're trying to move forward? I mean, I, we've talked a lot about, I mean, really so much, but um, the shame doesn't serve you and your body is a good body what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, you know, to be told all these desires that you have are good, but save them for marriage. You know, (laughs) like it doesn't make you a terrible person for, for having desires for, for being sensual, for, for wanting to love yourself and to be loved on and to have intimacy. And, and I would just say that we are so much better than what too many of these church spaces tell us that we are. Like we are so much better than that, men and women, you know, we're so much better than that. We can't be reduced to, you know, just these lust filled, you know, men who, who can't control themselves and we're going to pursue and get what we want. And we can't be, and women can't be reduced to, you know, just make sure you keep it buttoned up and tight. And then when it's, you're married that you can let it all loose, you know, (laughs) and be a lady in the streets and a freak in the sheets, you know, (laughs) like, like we're so much more than that. Um, but, but it's easy though. It's, it's too easy to, to doubt that you're anything more than that. It's too easy to doubt that you're anything more than what your body is telling the world that, you know, or what you think your body is telling the world about yourself. 
And I would just want to smash that idea to the ground and say that, you know, you are good as you are. And, and just, I'm sorry for those who are listening and have experienced this and maybe in the thick of it, or maybe in the process, their own process of healing and are triggered by this conversation. I'm really sorry that this is something that so many of us have in common, but you did not deserve what you got. Yeah, and I think I would say specifically for men, there is a distance, a cultural disincentive to unlearning toxic masculinity and the inherent in, inherent entitlement that comes from being a part of, and especially if you're high up in any kind of Christian space, and that reading through people like bell hooks and learning softness and tenderness toward yourself and unlearning some of those pieces doesn't just help people around you. It helps you mm-hmm. to tap into yourself. Um, we did an episode with Barnabas on men and emotions. And I think I would reference people back to yeah. that over and over again. And for men who have been victims of rape culture to know that you are believed and that there are disincentives to reporting that are put on you by things like toxic masculinity. And then for everyone else, I just think I want to name that many of us hold experiences in our bodies that might come up and might be triggering now and that there is some interrogating to do but there is also some just holding ourselves with compassion and knowing that the toll of yes reporting like in a formal way is really intense but also in just being honest with ourselves Mm -hmm. about the things that have happened to us i think about things that have happened to me and others around me and the ways that we just kind of breezed by things that have been shaping and traumatic for us. And so I want us to hold ourselves with compassion and seek therapy as needed in these situations. And then I'll just leave us with, uh, I mean, the sto- I think the story that we can all use to analyze is the, the story of Jesus in John, where there is a, and even the way it's framed is like a woman caught in the act of adultery. Mm-hmm. And, you're like, and then ask lots of questions about how that story is framed and why we frame it the way that we do. Where is the man in that story who was caught in the act of adultery? Why are Christian leaders so uninterested in where he is? Why do they feel so comfortable bringing a woman naked out into public space to judge Mm -hmm. her? And I think if we can start to ask some questions around that particular passage, it will help us to reclaim our theology when we pay attention long enough to see what's happening in those texts and the ways that Jesus not only distracts in his writing of whatever he does on the ground, but steps in to create a space of dignity for a person who is the victim of a system of oppression that is harming her Mm -hmm. disproportionately because of her gender and because of her activity and recognizing that Jesus doesn't do those things. And so I think that if we can look at that story and find the Jesus that is distracting and loving and interventive, we might actually find processes and practices in our churches and in and of ourselves that might help us move forward. Mm. Patty, is there anything you want to plug as we close out? Anything you're working on or things that you want people to know about? Ooh. Um, actually, yes. Um, <laughs> I know this is going out soon. <laughs> I was just thinking, I'm like, this is like a conversation that we're going to be sitting with for a while. And, and I just really do appreciate everyone who's taking the time to listen. And, and there's no way we could have captured it all. In this conversation, mm-hmm. there's so much more, but I just, I just want to say it's important to name it, name it for yourself, you know, name it for yourself because we can't, we can't see any growth or solution when it remains in the darkness. Um, as far as something I would like to plug, 
I am going to be leading a legacy trip um, to the Legacy Museum and the National Memorial Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, and going to Selma, Alabama um, over Juneteenth weekend. And I know it's like nine months away, but um, it's through, you can find them on Instagram. It's at Legacy Trips. It was founded by Tina Strawn. And I went for myself in April, and it was truly a life-changing experience. It's the kind of experience that I I really wish that everyone could go to the museum, go to that space. Brian Stevenson of Equal Justice Initiative, um, he is the one who who founded this, um, for those who may not be familiar. And so anyways, I'm going to be leading a trip. There are multiple trips throughout the year, um, but I would love for anyone who wants to to sign up with me. And I think it's going to be particularly powerful to go and to dive into the real um, anti-black racial traumatic racially traumatic history of our country in a real and honest way but in with a group of people who are who have all um, decided that we want to do better and we want to learn these things so that we don't see history continue to repeat itself and so yeah that's just a you know a way you can find the information on my page or at legacy trips to to find out if you want to join me for a trip and i will try to remember to drop a link in the bio for <laughs> thank that you <laughs> Well, Patty, thank you so much for your time today and tackling this um, really challenging topic. And I'm sure we'll have other times to connect and do things together in the future. So thank you. I look forward to that. Thank you, Brandy. (laughs) 